Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Coleman, here with my wonderful co-host, EJ Snyder. And we are deep in the home stretch. Uh, The playoff picture is as close as ever. There's ties at the number one seed, technically, in both conferences. We got a month to go in the regular season. Anything can happen over this next you know, four game stretch here. And quite honestly, I have no idea who's going to come out on top in either conference because both of them are just a a round robin of destruction at this point, but hell of a week 14 to talk about. We'll talk about week 15 uh, as well. Coming up here. See, it starts Thursday with chargers chiefs, one of the most important games of the week. So uh, huge, huge, huge show. But before we get into everything, uh, EJ buddy, how you doing? And what are you drinking tonight? I'm good. I'm staying warm, which is important because it's gotten cold up here. We are in winter time. We are in deep playoff football time. We are in ice on the windshield time. Uh, started up the pellet stove tonight for the first time. That kind of time. So I'm I'm good. I'm staying warm. Um, but it is the spirit of giving for the holiday season. And I saw this at the store and I thought it looked pretty cool. And I looked it up and I decided it was a good idea. This is Rock On and it is a crafted lager and it is a um, collaboration uh, to support musicians who have been hurt during the pandemic because obviously musicians have not been able to be out at bars and touring and all that. So portions of the proceeds from this beer go to help support um, musicians who musicians and crews who've been put out of work due to COVID. Um, it's called Sweet Relief is the relief fund and uh, Crosby Hops is making the beer itself. I have not had it. Crucible Brewing did the actual brewing. Um, so I thought, hey, here's a good way to give back. Um, try a new beer. It is uh, 16 ounces, one pint, and it's 5.2 by volume. So shouldn't have quite as many hot takes as we maybe had at the end of last <laughs> show. Um, but it, it felt like a good thing to do. So I'm, I'm happy to bring it on the pod. What do you have? Uh, I'm actually kind of going back to, I had a few shows ago, this, uh, Basil Hayden dark rye, which is like not super expensive or anything like that. It's a, you know, 
pretty affordable bottle, but it's just super interesting. It's rye also blended with Canadian whiskey and port. Oh, and I yeah. swear to God, it just it tastes like a Manhattan, but one that I don't <laughs> have to mix myself. So I got that uh, over a big rock tonight. So I, I will be letting the takes fly probably two hours into recording. Um, before we get into uh, you know news and notes and three up and everything like that, I do want to thank all the folks like Billy and Jared who joined on to become patrons this week over on the bootleg Patreon. We really appreciate the support. Uh, love that you guys are kind of, you know, believing in us and our work. Remember, if you are a patron, or at least if you just joined to be a patron, you get uh, merch discounts as one of the benefits of that, as well as a patron-only roundtable for the Ring of Honor and Hall of Fame level. That's going to be on January 8th, since that's the only Saturday we could find not impacted by holiday stuff. So uh, January 8th, probably about noonish Pacific time zone. That's about what we're thinking here. So, uh, you know, the last one, it was just us and Consti. Consti was the only one that could make it. So he had, you know, us by himself for like an hour and a half just doing Q&A and chit-chat and all that kind of stuff. So we'll see how many people show up for this one. And, uh, you know, it's an AMA. Fire away. Whatever you guys want to ask, whatever you guys want to talk about, we're there for you. So, again, that'll be January 8th if you're in uh, either of those two top layers of the Patreon and uh, why don't we get to news and notes? EJ, I'll let you take it away here. Yeah, so I was doing the non-fun part of this job, which was digging through emails in the bootleg Gmail account. <laughs> and uh, one of the cool things that was in there is a summary, a year-end summary from YouTube. And one of the stats on there caught my eye. Actually, many of the stats on there caught my eye. But the one that caught my eye is, as they sent that thing out like a week ago, you all had consumed 18.9 million minutes of us on YouTube. So by the time we're at year end, I'm real confident in saying all of you sickos out there are going to have sucked up 19 million minutes of bootleg on YouTube. That, I mean, that's like three shows, right? Yeah. And somebody was like, goes, well, so. to be fair, your shows are really long. And I was like, yeah, they are. And people listen longer than they do typically, which I also think is a huge achievement. But yeah, just a staggering amount of support. So thank you very much. Uh, more staggering stats. This one came up last Sunday. I wasn't aware, but Cam Jordan, defensive end for the Saints, has started every game from his rookie year until last Sunday. He was on the COVID reserve list. He's fine. That is 172 straight games. As a field player, we're not talking about a, a punter, kicker, some reserve quarterback that doesn't play very much. Like Cam Jordan's been out there doing it in all of those games. It's the longest act was the longest active streak of any position player in the NFL. And the thing that really just twists my knickers about this one 84.9 percent of the snaps in those games he played of the snaps he was eligible it's absurd for on defense he played almost 85 percent of the snaps in 172 straight games in the nfl that's ridiculous it shouldn't even be possible and he could have played last sunday if it hadn't been uh for the covid designation that's just goat stuff that's not many people even come close to that so huge shout out to cam jordan for that um and then we have a not so great follow-up we talked about the giants offense being really terrible uh last week and our good buddy danny kelly posted a tweet and said uh 
Here's a current list of all the Giants players that have scored a touchdown in the last month. Chris Myarek, Andrew Thomas, who is a tackle, and Elijah Penny. And then Saquon had to come into the picture last Sunday and screw it all up. So now there's four Giants players who've scored in the last month. That's not a sampling. That's all of them. That's everybody on the Giants roster that scored in the last month. And one of them is an offensive tackle. So when we say the and Giants Saquon offense, was like a like a backdoor cover there, it's like a receiving touchdown in like the last week that you could do it. I mean, but at the time this tweet was posted, they that that was one of the <laughs> most bleak runs of offense in the NFL. And like I've seen some bad ones, that was bleak. We can talk about you know Danny Dimes being hurt. You know, hopefully he recovers soon. I know they're still kind of running tests on the on the on the spine injury. I don't know if he's playing this week. It sounds like he probably won't, and for his safety, he probably shouldn't. But even beyond that, like even playing with a backup quarterback, to be that bereft of production across your entire offense, despite all of the money and all of the draft picks they've invested, like that's that's almost inexcusable. And yet there are solid rumors coming out that they are going to bring Joe judge back. Gettleman is almost certainly gone, but there is this undercurrent of we're going to keep Joe judge. And there's been whispers that Mara thinks that he's found his bill parcels, his Belichick. And I'm like, you know, okay. the only the only <laughs> thing that Belichick was really sad about when Judge left was that he didn't end up in the AFC East. I mean, it's they're 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 trying to make Gettleman out to be a scapegoat, and don't get me wrong, Gettleman had plenty of mistakes, but it's not like the roster has no talent. Like there there's some dudes there that. Even now, we objectively like like Kenny Galladay isn't just like a bad football player. Now mm-hmm. he's dealt with injuries and he hasn't been as good with the Giants as I believe he was with Matt Stafford with the Lions. But like, it, it's it, the gap isn't all about Dave Gettleman. There's been some very troubling coaching issues here, and at least for me when I look at the state of the roster, when I look at the state of the coaching staff, when I look at the future of the organization, because you and I are not convinced that Daniel Jones is the guy here. Why not just completely start fresh? Like what's, what's the motivation to not complete? Like why kind of string it out and you're bringing in a, a GM that might end up having to fire Joe judge next year. Anyway, if they continue to be bad, which this franchise has been bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the barrel for five straight years now. Like why, why only kind of do half measures here? Why not just wipe the slate completely clean and, you know, go after a candidate that you really like, whether it's Nathaniel Hackett, whether it's, you know, people seem to like Brian Dable again this week, all of a sudden I, whoever you want to throw out there is a name. I don't even care. I don't understand this half measure stuff here because i feel like dave gettleman has things that are his fault joe judge has things that are his fault why only get rid of one yeah things like joe judge coming out this week and again saying well players are still learning how to practice 
It's week 14 <laughs> of your second year. What the hell? Like, what do you mean they're still learning how to practice? That's like second week of training camp. And like, yeah, I understand there's a ton of roster turnover on NFL teams every year. And it is a new team every year. I don't think we as fans appreciate that enough that each iteration, yes, has a small core that's carried over. But the roster movement is somewhere between 40 and 60 percent on most rosters. And but to say that professional football players are still learning how to practice in your system two thirds of the way through your second year. I'm not seeing the keep light flashing at that point. I'm saying, really? okay. well, that's nice. Uh, Again, we're going to bring in a general manager. We're going to let them be in the selection process for a coach that they agree with. So we get that very important mesh between GM and coach where they're on the same page, and then we're going to move forward. And we know that's going to take a little while. The talent's there. It needs to be developed, but it's not a full, like, two-and-a-half-year rebuild. Like, Gettleman did not leave, will not have left the cupboard completely bare. But the Joe Judge, I don't want to call it love, the Joe Judge vote of confidence coming out of the Giants has me very confused. I just... You know, in the modern NFL, I've seen organizations not afraid to just realize something after one and two years and and say, you know what, this isn't working. Let's go in a different direction. Like Jacksonville may very well make a move with Urban Meyer after one year. Um, I can't remember his name. Uh, Cardinals coach that only lasted a year. Yep. Uh, name escapes me, but they or they ultimately made the right that only call. Last one year. <laughs> Uh, Rosen was a top 10 pick and lasted a year, but the Cardinals were like, you know what? We've seen 16 games of this. It's not working, and we don't think it's going to work. Let's go get Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury. And now they're contending for the top seed in the NFC. Like Sometimes it becomes very plainly evident that shit ain't working, and you need to start over. And the Mara's insistence on half measures will not do them any good. Um, to get to something a little bit more positive, let's talk about three up, uh, bills and bucks, which started out being a blowout, ended up being a great game towards the end. Very much a tale of two halves, which I feel like the bucks tend to be involved in a lot of games that are the tale of two halves, both for and against them. This game was fascinating to me for a variety of reasons, some good, some bad for both teams. The good is I think that the Bills showed that even without a run game, it's still possible for them to move the ball. Not that they can't run the ball. Like, they popped a few good runs in the second half, both with Josh Allen and with Singletary. Like, they were kind of RPO heavy, and they were getting, you know, pull keys. So they pulled it, and they threw more than they ran because the RPO split. We saw the same thing happen with Philly. I'm not going to get too deep into that. Um, But they showed that, even with consistently getting the keys to just throw the ball and throw the ball and throw the ball, they still put up, what, 20, 24, 27 points in this game. They didn't have a bad performance. They just had an inconsistent performance because in the first half, they were really struggling to get going. They were struggling to sustain sustain drives. And then the second half, they were really turning it on. Josh Allen heated up. Again, they popped a couple big runs that at least gave some sort of semblance of balance. They were more efficient in the red zone. Hit a really nice seam ball down there. Um, 
you know, uh, Josh scored on like a, a counter bash call, you know, which really kind of <laughs> opened things up for them at the start of the second half. So I feel like the Bills showed that the offense isn't completely broken and they could still make it work. On the other end of the spectrum, the Bucks secondary is kind of a snake in the grass where the Bills literally went into this game and said, we're not going to give any of our running backs more than like four carries because it's, it's probably on average not going to work out for us. We're going to throw and we're going to throw and we're going to throw. And we don't think that you can match up with our receivers. And we, we don't think that you're really going to punish us that much for doing that. And in the first half, again, it kind of worked. But as the game went on and Allen heated up, their DBs were not good enough to cover Stephon Diggs and Cole Beasley and, you know, Davis, uh, Gabe Davis making a crucial play on fourth and four. Like their DBs weren't good enough to match up with these guys. And I feel like there's been uh, an, uh, an under the radar storyline this season of the Bucks secondary, particularly the Bucks corners, kind of being their undoing in multiple games here. And this is just another example that if they if they face the wrong team in the NFC playoffs that has the receiver talent to go out there and just completely carve up their corners, I'm I'm not sure if I like the Bucks' chances here of getting out of the AFC. Like it's hard to win a Super Bowl when your secondary is terrible. And at least in my opinion, the Bucks secondary is uh, a liability to put it nicely. This is a classic case of mating pass rush and coverage. And in the first half, uh, Bruce Arians, you know, I think he's been watching a lot of Miami film. And he was like, all right, bring the house. Like, they blitzed the piss out of Josh Allen in the first like half. Like 32 times, something like that. It, it was crazy. They, they just blitzed and blitzed and blitzed. It looks like what a team would do against a rookie. But that was Bruce Arians' idea of... We're going to bring the house. We don't think they can hold up long enough. And our corners are physical. And they, the entire, both teams are very physical in this game. This was a physical hitting matchup. Um, one of our bootleg shot of the week nominees was the second play in the game. Um, so both teams came out hitting. And the Bucks secondary is starting to get healthy. They're starting to get some guys back. And when the pass rush is like that, when the pass rush is voracious and making Josh Allen choose very, very quickly, they held up. <laughs> they held up for two and a half seconds, and it worked just fine. As Josh got through that and got into the second half and started to heat up and started to punish them with more QB keepers, he had over 100 yards in this game rushing, like you started to see the coverage break down because the rush wasn't having the same effect. They blitzed almost as much, but the Bills made some adjustments. And let's be honest, Josh Allen put on a cape in this game at halftime. His first half, uh, 12 of 20, 60%, 130 yards, no TDs, a pick, three sacks, 6.5 yards per attempt. That's a 58.3 rating, not QBR, but passer rating. So, not great. Second half, 23 of 32, 71.9%, 175 yards, but two TDs, no picks, no sacks, and that ends up being 105.6 rating. Also tacked on eight rushes, 66 yards, 
and a rushing TD in the second half. So Josh Allen put the Bills on his back in rushing, in passing, came out and made this a game. Again, this was not a pretty game in the first half. Didn't look like the Bills were going to compete. Ends up going to overtime, um, largely because of what Allen and the Bills were able to do. But you're right. Coverage in the second half looked a whole lot different when Allen was finding ways, both with RPO and quarterback, straight quarterback runs, called quarterback runs, to really make them think for a second. All of a sudden, secondary got exposed a little bit, and Buffalo started marching and scoring points. And uh, another aspect of this is, yes, Buffalo was scoring, but the reason why they were able to get back in the game is because the defense kept Tampa from scoring. You know, I feel like Dane Jackson had some really nice reps, stepped up against the tight ends, playing ultra-physical. It's it's hard for a guy at his size to, you know, take on, like, Gronk and, and really all of their, their tight end core, but he did it, made a couple really nice plays. Um, you know, Poyer... Uh, made a couple really clutch tackles short of the sticks, and they 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 held Tampa to really only getting like two good drives from halftime onward, which against Tampa's admirable. And without that defensive switch being flipped, very similar to the offensive switch being flipped, this would have been like a forty to ten type game, mm-hmm. and we probably would have put the nail in the coffin for the Bills' season. They still lost. But I think their second half performance was encouraging enough to me that I think they're not quite dead yet. Because, again, they proved that even when they're just throwing and throwing and throwing, they can still put up points. And they proved that even when they're getting lit up in the first half, they can make defensive adjustments and hold a very good offense to not a whole lot of production in the second half. Kind of a too little, too little, uh, too little, too late type game, obviously. Um but it, it, the second half, I think, was more encouraging for me than I think the first half, or for Buffalo, than I think the first half was for Tampa. Hmm. And I know that's like a hot take. I'll give you a hot I, take on that one. It's, it, I was really that impressed with how Buffalo was able to come back from being down that much and still taking it to OT. On the flip side, I, I mentioned the, the corner problem for Tampa. The reason why there's still a threat, though, is because, A, Tom Brady, MVP frontrunner, he's still great. We know that. The offensive line and Leonard Fournette are still ass kickers in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Like, Donovan Smith is, I mean, this is easily, like, not even close, his best season as a pro kicking ass in the run game like Tristan Wirfs is probably a top three or four tackle regardless of side in the NFL he's a monster Jensen's great at center you know the guards both guards have been stellar this year like that offensive line is probably minimum top three in the league because you can kind of order them any way you want to they have to be in your top three and when you combine that with Leonard Fournette also having a renaissance season both as a runner and as a receiver I mean, he is, he's catching everything. He's, he's like James White plus 40 pounds this year. <laughs> Those two elements are still why I think they have a chance to outlast their secondary being shitty. Because as long as they can still run and still convert a hell of a lot of third downs and protect themselves from getting exposed on defense, they still have a shot. But without that offensive line and without Lenny Fournette doing his thing, 
I I do think that Tampa would be in a lot more trouble. For sure, and I'm not going to forget about their tight end core, which is ridiculously deep. Uh, Hall of Famer leading it off. You got Mike Evans, another Hall of Famer, outside catching all kinds of weird down balls. Um, Luke Easterling, who writes for DraftWire at USA Today, is a huge Mike Evans fan. He posted today, I think Mike Evans averages 15.2 yards a catch for his career. It's insane. For his career. One of the best of his generation, easily. So that offense is um, very malleable. They can do what they need to however they need to. They want to go up on the outside, they got Evans. They want to go deep down the seam, they got Gronk. They want to pound the snot out of you, yeah, Ryan Jensen is going to punch you in the mouth 40, 50 times a game, and you're going to stop wanting it at some point. Um, Ed Oliver had... Had a lot of piss and vinegar in the beginning of this game. Got into it with Brady for the second time in his career. By the end of the game, Jensen had humbled Oliver physically. Bent him over a couple times. Yeah. Just he tends to do down. that. Yep. No, he is a tough guy. And and I say that in a not like a, oh, paper tough guy. Like, no, Jensen is a tough guy in the middle. And he will do what he needs to to dominate the person across from him. Did this week, does many weeks. So... This is a team that is very difficult to stop, not to mention Tom. And, of course, you need to mention Tom whenever you get to the playoffs and beyond because he has more experience there than literally anybody else in NFL history. Um, This is a team that can be tough to stop. They may give up points, right? They're still tough against the run, but like you said, they hit the wrong team on the wrong day. They could give up a bunch of passing yards, and that could keep the game very even. I still feel like in the end the Bucks are going to be there because they're going to be very difficult to shut down on offense because they can always just go to the next guy, go to the next thing, go to the next concept, go to the next play. I Unfortunately for Tampa, I do think that they are going to need their offense to play out of their minds to get through the NFC because it's going to – they are on track to – have to go to Green Bay, which is no easy feat. Yep. And even then, you know, again, based on what happens in the last month, like you're, you're still going to have to face Arizona. You're still going to have to face the Rams. You're still going to have to face all those receivers from Dallas, most likely. Like the receiving cores in the NFC are insane. I just worry that they don't have the horses on the back end to – uh to survive four shootouts in a row Mm. to get through the NFC playoffs. That's really, really hard to do. Like I compare that to some of the defenses that also have those receiving cores. Like like now that Dallas's defense is back healthy, can they win a shootout against the Cowboys? I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe that week one showdown that we watched in Vegas of, uh, of Dallas and Tampa was a little bit, little bit of a preview of something to come in January. Maybe we'll see. Uh, three up number two. Speaking of NFC playoff contenders, the 49ers really, really, really needed this win over Cincinnati, and they got it. Really gutsy win. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what kind of chance I want to give them in the NFC because they are not without issue themselves. Mm. But I will say this. Um, their skill position group 
when they're healthy, Debo, Ayuk, Kittle, <laughs> you know, throw in whatever running back you want to, whether it's Eli Mitchell, Jeff Wilson, it doesn't feel like it even matters at this point, but, you know, Mitchell's super talented. You throw that group together, that that's a tough group to match up with in in virtually any way. <laughs> you know, Kittle is a, a unicorn of a tight end. Ayuk can beat you with Yak. He can beat you over the top. Debo is... How do you even describe Debo at this point? Because he's not a receiver. He's not a running back. He's in everything. He's one of the best Swiss Army Knives in the league. It's a very, very tough group to deal with. And I feel like when Jimmy's on, which is not every week, but when he's on... I don't know a whole lot of defenses that can match up with all those guys, and that's why they're dangerous. Not to mention, I think the defense has also played kind of under the radar, or under the radar, excuse me, pretty well this season. They only have like a few very, very small weaknesses. But uh, man, when when this team gets rolling, they're they're pretty scary. And that's the thing that I think a lot of folks forgot about we'll talk about the offense or I'll talk about the offense in just a minute but the defense new coordinator this year not not new to the team but new in that role first time ever as a defensive coordinator D'Amico Ryans and excellent player player we both followed um, closely when he was a player and had a ton of respect for and we're really excited about his chances but it's going to take a while when you change from one guy to the next terminology cadence what they're going to call what they expect all those things are things that you learn in stride and in season. And through the first half, they had struggles. They had breakdowns. They had games where they didn't look good. And people went, oh, man, maybe D'Amico's not the guy. It's a little early for that. Now they're starting to gel and play up to their talent level, play fast. You always hear that, right? They're thinking less and playing with more speed in the defense. The offense was kind of the same way for different reasons. Debo was there. Kittle was hurt. Ayuk was, I don't know, benched, doghouse, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> whatever that was, he, yeah. He wasn't played, right? So it was just kind of Debo, and it was the Debo show. And they f- they focused and featured Debo, right? And Debo had some amazing games, but he didn't have a ton of help. He routinely got running back help at, through that running back by committee. Doesn't even feel fair. Like <laughs> running back by whoever feels a little bit more fair. So there were weeks where their offense fired and there was weeks where their offense misfired and looked really toothless. And then there are just weeks that Jimmy didn't play great. And Jimmy's going to have those weeks. He's a little bit like Kirk Cousins that way. He can play up. His highs, I don't think, are as high as Kirk's. He doesn't get quite as hot. But he definitely has down weeks where he plays down or, or just doesn't play as well as he can. Now you're starting to see everything come together the way they envisioned it. Debo's still there. Ayuk has worked his way out of the doghouse and is scoring massively important points, some to win this game. Kittle's back healthy. Nobody's going to stay with him when he's healthy and playing well. Um, the offensive line, we got to talk about Trent Williams. Like, I'm just going to pound, pound the table right here, and I'm going to say my hot take for the week, which isn't all that hot. I think it's a lukewarm take. Trent Williams is the best football player in the nfl period any position Mm. don't Mm. care don't care no one is playing football better than trent williams right now we talked about him a lot at the beginning of the year we talked about him kind of week on week off it wasn't because trent did anything silly it's because we kind of got tired of saying every week oh my god did you see trent williams annihilate that guy this week like 
in the run game, he is way more agile than a guy his size should be, and he is routinely tracking down much more agile guys, defensive backs, in space, and obliterating them. Routinely. He has a 99-point-something run grade from PFF. Unheard of. Even the PFF folks are like, since we've started grading, nobody's had a grade this high. Like, <laughs> this isn't normal. And just looked up a stat. He has given up one sack in the last 735 pass attempts. That's more than an entire season worth of pass attempts. He's given up one sack. So here's a guy that is elite, I have no words for that. Ugh. Elite as a pass protector and has the highest run grade anybody currently has ever seen. Like, Trent Williams is the best football player in the NFL right now, and he's not going to win, you know, Offensive Player of the Year because he's a tackle, and they don't give that award to tackles. They could and should, but they're not going to. So anyways, when you have that many guys assembled on one side of the ball that are all healthy and all playing well and jimmy comes out and looks now we've given jimmy a lot of crap on this show and rightfully so when when jimmy comes out and looks like he did in the second half and he's on like forget it you know the defense will easily hold up to that level because the offense is going to score a bunch of points so the 49ers are getting dangerous at the right time. They struggled through the first half of the season. They looked really inconsistent, and people, including us, kind of went, mm, is it time to write them off yet? Like, it's almost time. And now it feels like they're back, and they're clicking on all cylinders, and everybody's kind of looking at them going, ooh, wow, if all those guys are there, that's a that's a tough out. So I just looked it up because I'm curious. Uh, so October 10th, <laughs> October 10th against the Cardinals is week nine. Uh, no, excuse me. November 7th against the Cardinals was week nine. Was the last and only sack that he's given up this season. You have to go all the way back to October 11th of 2020, more than a calendar year, to get to the last sack he gave up before that. So he went 13 months and, as you said, over 700 snaps without giving up a sack. I don't know if I've ever seen that. Like that's that's not just rare air. That's like historically rare air. Like this dude's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Slam it, like first ballot Hall of Famer. Like slam it shut. It's over. He's arguably the best tackle of his generation. And I know that he got paid a record deal, and he's you know the highest paid guy and all that kind of stuff. It, it's not enough. It's literally not enough. The fact that Washington fucked up this bad to chase away a player of this caliber is like insane to me. I wasn't going to bring that up, but yeah, it is. It's it's amazing to me. It's almost like people get bored with people being this good. And that's a weird thing to say, but they're just like, oh, yeah, he's always going to do it. He's, he's always done it. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like we could replace that. No, 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 you can't <laughs> like there's there's nobody out there that you could get that is going to play better than that or even really a semblance of that. We were talking about it before the show. I said, well, to me, it's like Walter Jones, who in my mind is one of the best offensive tackles to ever play the game like and there are a lot of great ones. But Walter Jones is right there. Imagine if it was Walter Jones, but he was faster. I don't want to say more athletic because Walter Ugh. Jones was stupid athletic. But imagine if Walter Jones was faster. Like, because when you see Trent get out on the pole, like he's tracking down DBs 10 and 15 yards down the field and just mowing them over. 
And those guys are supposed to be able to jitterbug away from people that are over 300 pounds. Mm-mm. Oh, he just runs them down. And <laughs> that's just a scary thought. Like, that shouldn't be possible, but that's what he's doing. What's unfortunate for the Niners, though, and maybe this will be a little bit of a, a, a depressing three-up this week, but their kind of Achilles heel that I feel might cost them in the playoffs, similar to how I feel like the Bucks' secondary is should be talked about more. Their right side of the offensive line, opposite of Trent Williams, is arguably just as much of a liability as Williams is a staple. Hmm. Like, you look at Tom Compton, Daniel Brunskill, at right guard, right tackle. They give up 10 pressures in this game. 10 pressures. Sam Hubbard got seven on him. Hendrickson got a sack on him. Um, Larry Ogunjobi got four pressures. Like, they were just getting absolutely destroyed and like not not to disparage jimmy or anything like that but if it's third and seven and he's got two turnstiles on the right side of the line he's not mobile enough to get out of it and you saw that in this game like he's not a lamar he's not uh you know like a prime cam obviously he's not even i would say like a a, a mac jones in terms of niftiness in the pocket. Because Mac, he's got some pretty nice feet, not going to lie. And he can kind of get out of some stuff that people people don't give Mac enough credit for how good he is at getting out of pressure in the pocket. It's I just don't think he has the pocket skills or the athleticism to make up for the right side of his offensive line caving in every other third down like they were against Cincy. And it almost cost them this game. Like it flat out almost made them lose. And since he had some problems of their own, two muffed punts gave away a couple possessions that led to points. Um, you know, there was the the long bomb to Jamar Chase that was a touchdown until it wasn't. And, you know, Jamar had a, a couple big catches in this one, but they really they really needed that one. And they didn't get it. Um, you know, you had some protection issues with Cincy themselves because they're playing with some backup offensive linemen. And yet they still almost won because they were able to take advantage of San Francisco's protection issues opposite Trent Williams. So Niners fans should be happy. They're still alive in the NFC race. They're still firmly in control of their own destiny, I should say, to get a wild card spot. But boy, if they don't, if they don't kind of shore up the right side of that offensive line and they're going up against DeMarcus Lawrence, they're going up against Micah Parsons lining up right next to each other in the first round, they're fucked. <laughs> like, they're straight up fucked. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't want to put the right side of that line up against anybody. A- anybody. Any, anybody, really, <laughs> that, that has any talent. Um, I have two words for you, secret weapon. What's that? Char- Charlie Werner. Yeah, six and seven man protections all day, baby. Charlie <laughs> Werner, right hand side, just stick him right off there, right over comp to just like be right there, because Charlie Werner is a great blocker, tight end out of Georgia, who caught my eye at the combine as being fairly athletic, and and really caught my eye on film when I was going through all the pass rushers that year in college, and I was like, man, and I kept making this note, right? This is one of those things about hand scouting i kept making this note like guy's struggling he's beating tackles but he's struggling against tight ends 
beating tackles, but he's struggling against tight ends. And I was like, man, there's it's a trend this year with edge rushers. And then I went back, and there were all the SEC pass rushers, and the tight end they were struggling with was Werner. And I was yeah. like, holy crap, he's he's draft eligible. Like, that's a guy. And then San Francisco drafted him. We celebrated on the draft live stream. That guy can block. They're going to they're gonna need to, to slide him. Um, either start him on the left side with Kittle in a double tight end formation and then slide him to the right to, to either get a straight up or chip uh, because, yeah, they were caving in fast. And, uh, you know, you look at Dallas, who we're really not going to talk about sort of in specific this week, the, the Dallas rule of three is back, right? Yeah. They got Gregory, they got Demarcus Lawrence, and they got Micah Parsons. And, whoa, boy, turns out when all three of those guys are on the field, guess what? They're going to wreak some havoc because they're all talented. And if they go up against somebody like that, you know, two out of three of those guys are going to be on that right side. Jimmy's going to be run for his life. Or God, even, you know, God forbid it's Green Bay and you got, you know, Preston Smith and Kenny. Kenny. <laughs> it's just... I, was, I was waiting for Kenny. <laughs> Kenny's always the guy I wait for because that guy is crazy talented. Or, like, if Washington somehow sneaks in, like, you're going to trust John Allen? To, to You're going you're gonna to win that one-on-one against John Allen? Okay. Not typically. Okay. Yeah. So, overall, really entertaining game. Very winnable game for Cincy that I think they're really going to want back because, again, yeah. they are fighting for their life right now in the AFC playoff race. And they really needed this one. And the 49ers gutted it out. You know, Jimmy... To his credit, made some great plays late in the game that they really needed. Uh, you know, Ayuk came through on the catch and run for the game-winning score. Like, 49ers earned this win, but there's also some things they got to work on if they want to take this further than just, like, the divisional round because they're, they're not a totally complete team. They're just a good team right now. And if you want to win the Super Bowl, you need to be a complete team. Uh, Rams-Cardinals... <laughs> a battle between two teams that theoretically are complete teams and the Cardinals were theoretically arguably the most complete team in the league and they got their asses kicked I I cannot say that I expected this I mean you got Jalen Ramsey out Higby out you know Dante Dayon out uh, Havenstein out, like uh, Henderson out, like you're missing all of these key contributors on both sides of the ball. And I mean, they just went down to Arizona and boat raced them. Well, maybe I shouldn't say boat race, but they were firmly yeah. in control of the game. And I never really felt, you know, even when Arizona was making that late push and they were on that last drive and, you know, there was the should you try to score now and get a field goal? And then you're doing the onside. Like I never really felt like, like Arizona actually legitimately had a shot to come back because they couldn't protect Kyler. Aaron Donald was in his lap all night. Vaughn was making plays. Leonard Floyd uh, was making plays. Kyler threw a couple boneheaded interceptions. The DBs played as well as they could sans <laughs> two starters. But, you know, Matt Stafford was dealing all night and the Rams front seven was completely in their bag in terms of getting pressure on Kyler. And they won with that. And it's kind of weird because the Rams are like that team this year where they lose games they're supposed to win and they win games they're supposed to lose. 
but they're making it work. And I think this was a, a firm signal that, okay, the, the free fall has ended. We figured out some stuff. Stafford's getting comfortable again. Odell's getting adjusted. Cooper Cup is still amazing. He's going to be an all pro. We can make it work. We're still very talented. We're still the Rams. That was a game that they desperately needed, and they got it. And I am now, maybe maybe this is dangerous to say, I am now more confident in the Rams than I was even earlier on in the year. Ooh. Because they were able to win that game that on paper they should have gotten completely blown out, and they still won. Yeah, if you'd swap these two for me, if you'd said... You know, the Rams did how the Cardinals did and the Cardinals did how the Rams did in this particular game. I would have been like, yeah, seems that seems about right. That's probably chalk in this game. Turns out that, you know, flip the script. Uh, Stafford comes out dealing, uh, using cup. Well, I give Sony Michelle a bunch of credit. The the Sony Michelle trade was like, ah, people like, ah, I never really, I never really got going in New England. You know, he rushed 20 times, 80 yards, four yards a pop. Steady you know, Eddie. Yep. Knocking out yards when they needed him, picking up first downs when he needed to. You know, Stafford was the difference with explosive plays. He threw some absolute dimes. The ball he threw down the left sideline over Cup's shoulder. Oof. That <laughs> there's yeah. 10 guys in this league that can throw that ball, and Stafford can still throw it with ease. That is a play that Goff would rarely make. He'd rarely attempt it, to be fair. Like, Jared wasn't going to pull the trigger on that throw. Stafford will let it fly. And, again, the Rams, you said, you know, they they win games they should have lost and lose games. Anyways, like, in the beginning of the year, they won everything. They looked really good. They were neck and neck. They were ahead of the Cardinals, even in the division race, straight up. And then they faltered, right? They got to the peak, and they kind of fell off, and they started losing games in bunches. And now... Like you said, they had to have this game. Divisional game, so it's really worth two. It's against the Cardinals. It's in the Cardinals' house, right? You travel to Arizona. So, again, if you told me that the Rams perform like the Cardinals and the Cardinals like the Rams, I would have gone, yeah, Cardinals win that game at home, take firm control of the division. That's what we talked about in watch list last week. But it didn't happen that way. The Rams put their foot down. Front seven played amazing. Darius on the corner. I'm I'm really sorry about your prop bet, but Darius on the corner for the Rams played out of his mind. He played so well, and he played so well. He's a top ten corner last year. People didn't really pay attention to it. We talked about it, but when you're opposite Jalen Ramsey, you're not going to get that much attention. But I kept saying like Darius is playing really well. He's getting all these targets, and nobody's getting catches. What's uh, up with that? Yeah, <laughs> I I know he destroyed your prop bet. I apologize for that, oh, but the Rams, me. Me. the Rams came out and said, we're going to take this. Kyler ended up running when they got, when Zayvon Collins got the onside kick, I thought, oh no, here we go. Like Hale Murray 2.0, like tell me, tell me no. Like, but we got, we got to say something about primetime games this year. Like primetime games this year have been, here we are at, you know, we're at week 14 recap. We're looking at week 15. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like there's been more than one game this year in prime time where I've been like, turn it off at halftime sucks. 
right? Even and the Bears had an interesting primetime game. And it feels like a couple of years ago, by this point, by three quarters of the way through the season, there's usually been like three or four stinkers where you're like, okay, I'm watching it for work. <laughs> it's, I think like you know, thir- Thursday games have been there's been some rough thursday games but like the sunday night and monday night slate in general i feel have been very good and thursday like i would say like three just again don't quote me i'm not i don't the research but i would say there's been like two or three games on thursday night that didn't come down to a score right in the fourth quarter like or at at the gun you know they were they were seven point games at worst like there were no like, oh, they're down by 20. Yep, they're going to be down by 14 by the end of the game. Like that game, you don't even want to watch the second half. There have been so few of those in primetime. The NFL's parody in general is killing it right now. There's, I think somebody made this, gave the stat of 24 teams are within one game of being in the playoffs right now out of 32. Like 75% of the league. Yeah, it's... Yeah. It's staggering. So it felt like, oh, the Rams have this one. And then it was like, wait, Cardinals are, I mean, theoretically back in this. And now you're scrambling for, you know, maybe a late Hail Mary. Cardinals self-destructed at the very end there, which was a little bit troubling to me. Like Kyler was really Why not spike it? What the fuck? Why not spike it? And and just like Kyler was super frustrated and then they get a false start and they end up going backwards. And pretty soon you're like, I don't even think Kyler can throw it that far and Kyler can heave it. Like, you know, they just kind of melted at the end. And that worried me just the littlest bit. Like Cardinals are still, you know, look, great record in the NFC. One of the three leaders need to be talked about in the same breath with Tampa Bay and Green Bay because they're right there. They've earned that. But that little bit at the end, like, hey, you got a shot in a division game. Yeah, you're you're taking a heave, but you've won on them before. And you just go out with a whimper after getting the onside's kick. They just kind of self-destructed, self-destructed, and then the game was over. And that worried me just the littlest bit. So I'm just going to put that in there. I'm not going to over-index on it. I'm just going to say that wasn't. That wasn't great. That didn't feel like a well-oiled killing machine that's going to rage through the NFC playoffs right there. Yeah, I I struggle with trying to figure out where the Cardinals are at in the NFC. I don't think that they're the best team in the NFC because basically ever since Green Bay took them down with half a roster, I've said, yeah, Green Bay's the team. And just now they finally were able to, you know, wrestle the one seed away from them. And I don't think Green Bay's giving it back. But I, I, I struggle to figure out, okay, relative to Tampa, relative to Dallas, relative to LA now, because the Cardinals blew them out earlier in the season. Remember that. So I, I can't figure out exactly where they are in the food chain. What I do know is when they play to their potential, there's very few teams that are as talented as they are. You know, when Kyler's really rocking and rolling and he's healthy and, you know, Hopkins is healthy and, you know, Rondale's dynamic. I still don't feel like they get him the ball enough, but he is dynamic. Zach Ertz, I feel, has played extremely well since he came over from Philly. The offensive line is up and down, but when they have their weeks, they have their weeks. Chase Edmonds, I think, is a fantastic weapon. James Conner's been great. Okay, all right. There it is. How many players did you name before you got to Connor? 
Too many. Like seven. Yeah, too many. <laughs> I, I put a mea culpa on Twitter that James Conner, we talked about it in our divisional preview in the offseason. I thought James Conner was a meh signing, right? He kind of went out with a whimper in Pittsburgh. He was hurt, but I just I didn't feel like he brought a whole lot of dynamism. I ate crow publicly on Twitter yesterday. I said, I thought this was a meh signing. Baloney. Connor has been indispensable for the Cardinals this year. He is second in running back touchdowns in the league. 15. Second in the league in running back touchdowns. He has been a force for them, running the ball, catching the ball. I don't know about you, but he looks niftier running the ball than he did really in the past two or three years. And he had good feet, but it was usually just kind of in the short area. And yeah, uh, Lewis Riddick talked about it on the broadcast last night. People miscast him as a power only back. He had more than that. He looks shifty. And and Riddick said another thing about he worked really hard during the offseason to prove people wrong. And it feels like it. It feels like a guy that lost a little bit of weight, added a little bit of quickness, worked on his pass catching, and is now this complete force for them that when he's in, he is not predictable. You are not sure they are running it between the tackles when John when Connor comes in the game, right? He has been a thing for them and he's on a one-year deal. He's a complete bargain. He's going to make his money, but he's been a revelation for the Cardinals. And I have to eat it on that one. Cause I was like, James Connor, whatever. Yeah. They added him. Sure. Depth, blah, blah, blah. Like I thought he was good for short yardage carries, steal a couple of touchdowns. That is where I drew the line. He's been dynamic and a force for them. I've been really enjoying uh, Nate Tice on on Twitter this season because so Nate Tice he's a writer he does uh, uh, the athletic football show with Robert Mays he's fantastic um, and son of Mike Tice if you're familiar with Mike Tice who I love and then uh, he was also James Connor's assistant position coach at Pitt. Mm-hmm. when he was uh, I think or was he a GA or an assistant I can't quite remember. Because he played with Russell Wilson at Wisconsin and then, you know, was getting into the coaching game in the family business, went to Pitt, coach James Conner. Um, and he he kind of has been taking a couple of victory laps this season because he's like, look, I've known since James was like a young in at Pitt that he could catch the ball. The problem is nobody ever let him catch the ball. Mm. And, uh, you know, a decade later, he's he's out making one handed grabs on Monday Night Football and you know, proving that uh, that he is as versatile a weapon as you allow him to be. And so that's what I'm saying. Like, the Cardinals are, they're insanely talented. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, particularly at home, which is also something that's weird, <laughs> particularly at home, oh. they just lay an egg. And I don't have an explanation for it. And that's why I can't figure out where to stack them in this group of like five teams underneath green Bay, because I, I don't really know which Cardinals I'm going to get the ones that play to their potential or the ones that inexplicably shit the bed. Well, here's, here's a question for you that just popped into my mind because Mm. of that. We talked about the Cardinals being road warriors two weeks ago that they'd won all of their games on the road, right? That made them the best team in the road in the NFL. And then last week, we followed it up with a note and said, hey, not only have they won all their games on the road, they won them all by 10 plus points. 
which is staggering. First time since, I think, the 68 Cowboys is what we said, that that's happened. Last night, Monday Night Football, they threw up a stat. And they said, not only is that the case, but all their turnovers come at home. Right? The balance really? of their... The balance of their turnovers is real bad at home and really decent on the road, which would lead you to think that's why they'd had all their success. So I pose the question, is it a good thing they lost the number one seed? Because they're better on the road as a team? Wouldn't that be crazy? I'm just saying, is that not an advantage? If you are undefeated on the road, you win all your games on the road by 10-plus points, and your turnover differential is way better away from your home stadium, maybe it pays not to have home field advantage throughout the playoffs. You know what's even crazier? Speaking of weird Arizona sports stats, so they lead the league in fumbles per game at 1.9. They fumbled oh, yeah. twice I saw this. per game. Mm-hmm. When I was in Cleveland, by the way, and I'm like literally sitting with my buddy who works with the Browns, and we're watching them fumble four fucking times yep. and recover all of them. On the road. On the road. And I'm like, there's no, like, this is going to catch up to them. No, apparently it doesn't, because even though they fumble more than any other team in the league, they are uh, best in the league in terms of lost fumbles per game mm-hmm. at 0.2. So they lose they lose a fumble like once every five games, despite fumbling more than any other team. What? Makes what? no sense. <laughs> like, come on. Makes no sense. Most fumbles, least lost. Like. You know, uh, it's like the anti Giants. Like, I don't get it. (laughs) Now, JB said to me, uh, he had a football coach coming up, and one of the football coaches' sayings was, It's a funny shaped ball. Yeah. And it's that's what it comes down to. You get stuff like that. It's, you know, basketball, it's a round ball, baseball, it's a round ball, tennis, round ball, football. It's not. It just bounces funny sometimes. And you get that with. You see this with different statistics, with sacks, with interceptions, with fumbles, with all kinds of stats. Like, last year, they couldn't buy a sack. This year, they have 25. You know, it it just goes up and down, and it's a funny-shaped ball. Like, and that is the ultimate it's-a-funny-shaped ball stat for the Cardinals. We drop it on the ground more than anybody, but we lose less than anybody, so it's okay. I, I don't think this is tracked, but I think they also have like the most bad snaps because I swear to God, every single game, there's I, like three or four bad snaps. Uh, yeah, there's some other teams that might dispute that, like Pittsburgh, like Kendrick Green's getting a reputation for throwing Ben Roethlisberger. Oh, he's snaps. got moonshots. <laughs> yeah, go catch him over. Go over like, the and Ben's just like, I got it. And so it, it overall seems like less because, again, they lose less of those, but... There are some other fan bases that might might go after you on the snaps bit. Uh, let's get to uh, three down number one. Bum, bum, bum. Unfortunately, this is like a weekly topic at this point. But Urban Meyer, this is this has got to be a one and done. Like, I know Shad Khan doesn't listen to our show, but oh my god, Mister Khan says you. 
Hmm. Please do not do this to Trevor Lawrence. Do not cost this young man his career. Because this dude is checked out. He does not have the personality of a winning NFL head coach. (laughs) All of this stuff that he did in college that he could do in college because of the power structure that used to exist at that level and still does to a degree, but certainly less so now. Um, You know, back when, when Urban was dominant, like the transfer portal wasn't what it was today. And, you know, the, the, the players virtually had zero power. It was the head coach had all the power. So he could get away with it, whatever he wanted. When I look at his quote unquote ability to motivate at the NFL level, reports are that none of the players like him. None of the players want to play for this guy. That he's a condescending dick that nobody actually wants in the building. You got reports from Tom Pelissero posted to the actual NFL website. This is on the NFL news desk talking about how he's, you know, getting into arguments with Marvin Jones, who's unquestionably one of the leaders on the team. And so much so that Marvin had to leave and assistants had to convince him to come back. That he's belittling all these assistant coaches and calling them losers, which, to be fair, he disputed that. But again, I don't think Tom is running that story unless he's heard that from multiple, and I mean multiple sources. And I believe that more than I believe Urban denying it. I'll just say that. You know, you have the, this is less of an issue, but the handshake with Mike Vrabel after yesterday's game where they got blown out. Vrabel was on his staff at Ohio State. Didn't even acknowledge his existence. Just blank thousand yard stare. Nobody fucking likes this guy. Nobody wants him there. Trevor Lawrence, who does not create drama at all, is doing his damnedest to not call him out in the media for not playing James Robinson. And then he still doesn't really give any work to James Robinson, who's arguably their best player on offense. This is a fucking disaster. It's not fair to Trevor. It's not fair to the fans. It's not fair to the assistants that, you know, unfortunately are, are, are stuck with this guy. He is not built to be an NFL head coach. He is not built to coach in an environment where he, through archaic means, has all of the power and nobody's allowed to tell him that he's doing it wrong. He can't survive in this league. So let him go. I don't care what it costs. Let him go. He should not be here anymore. Yeah, the question is, what would you do if you kept him? Because he is not Fail adding again. Yeah, he's <laughs> not adding anything. It's it's toxic work environment. Uh, none of his staff is really going to want to work for him after he called them out as losers publicly. Um, you know, and like Urban is the guy that in now we're talking about 14 weeks of regular play and the preseason that he's had so many scandals that you forget that yeah. he hired a strength coach who <laughs> was uh shouldn't have been hired as an NFL strength coach and had to let him go like at the beginning of the to season to put it you, mildly you yeah. totally forget that right because he's had the bar incident he's had not playing his best players he's had calling out his OTA incidents that cost them a a quarter million dollars in fines and they're losing OTA days next season because he didn't obey the rules 
Yeah, not to mention they asked him at the podium this week, which I thought was a little bit of an unfair question, but not really given the circumstances like, hey, why aren't you playing Andre Sisko? And he's like, oh, player we both like, by the way. Like, oh, I I think his his playing time's gone up a little bit. Sisko played zero snaps on Sunday. Uh, This is just a comedy of errors, and I don't mean comedy in a funny way. It's just continuing to trip over your own feet to the point where you are hindering your team's chances to win you are ensuring that you are going to end up damn near last place like not just not competing but like you're going to be down at the bottom that's the gig um i don't see any way that they can keep him because how do you run that back with the fan base how do you run that back with the assistant coaches who are also under contract? You can't fire all of them. You can't just excise the whole staff. And why would you for this guy? Right. What are you going to do? Oh, come buy season tickets because Urban's back. Like they bought yeah. the name, not the coaching ability. And they're reaping the benefits. And the benefits are lousy at this point because They got what they paid for. And Sarah Spain came out on TV this week and said, I told you so. I could have let you know. You could have known. Everywhere this guy has ever been, he has not taken responsibility. And he's left before the scandals caught up to him. And Mm -hmm. so why would it be any different? And she's right. She, She earns her victory lap on this one. Like... It's not like you couldn't have known this was coming with Urban Meyer. Everybody should have known this was coming if you've paid attention. It's always somebody else's fault, and he skates before it gets really bad. And he's going to do that to the tune of several million dollars, and that's that's the reality. It is, it is what ugly. it is. Yeah, it's ugly. Khan's going to just have to eat it and pay a shitload of money to get out of this problem yeah and he can afford it he's got the money he can afford it. oh it's not going to impact his bottom line at all it's just terribly embarrassing but they got to do it yeah because i'll tell you what this is still an attractive job because of trevor lawrence they can still get somebody good and the roster's not terrible like you need offensive line help you have some defensive playmakers you don't have a ton but you have some um, you have young players that we like. You got a solid running back, which look, you can get a solid running back anywhere. You really, you know, you need probably another we need to get Chark back healthy. You need to get another weapon at tight end, but you've got a you've got your quarterback, which is always attractive, and you are not without cap space and you are not without draft picks. Mm-hmm. Right? So compare that yep. to a situation the... like Chicago where you have a quarterback, but you don't have a ton of draft picks and your cap space looks really bad. You don't have a core. You have more issues than you can solve with the resources you have. Jacksonville's not like that. Like, yeah, yeah. you could go down there and win quickly. Jacksonville's got the number two overall pick. Chicago doesn't pick till the second round because their first round pick is, which is also a top five pick, is with the Giants. So, I mean, if I had to weigh both options, as much as I love Justin Fields, no. You're gonna I'm win. Take a Jacksonville. You're gonna win more quickly in Jacksonville because of the base they have, uh, and the fact that they still have a ton of resources and an owner that's willing to spend. 
Like they had the most money in free agency going into last year and all the draft picks. So you didn't, you didn't spend it all. Like they need some help on the offensive line, but you can do that in one season. And the turnaround could be really marked. If you get someone in there that understands how to develop an NFL quarterback and Trevor starts playing, like he showed flashes of for the first six weeks, even when things were falling down around his ears. Look in the last month, he has looked horrendous. He's been running for his life, and he has looked terrible. But in the first six, seven games, if you go back, he made at least two throws a game that you went, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, he looked good. And I, I still believe somebody that good in college, it's it's hard to it's hard to imagine him being a bust, but he just needs the right coach to make yeah. it not happen, <laughs> to put it a better way. Yeah. Uh, three down number two. Oh, Raiders. This is so stupid. Like, I, this rarely works out, folks. You know, there are, there are examples, and I'm sure they will show up in our YouTube comments about, hey, let's go disrespect the other team's insert thing here. Logo, mascot, marker on the field, fans, uh, time-honored tradition, whatever it is. We will go thumb our nose publicly at the hostile house we're in. And before the game <laughs> and that will be something that fires us up enough that we will trounce what is you know a very capable football team in the chiefs who like since their defense turned around we need to talk about this in the last five weeks they have basically allowed single digit points there was one week they allowed double digit points like they have got it figured out second half spags is god at this point like they took a very troubled team and solved their issues. They imported Melvin Ingram. They put Chris Jones back in the middle mm-hmm. and wham, they're basically shutting people down. So the Raiders who've been up and down and we've talked at length about that. We don't need to go into that. Decide to go out and hop on the chiefs logo at Arrowhead. And then they got their faces pushed in. There is no other way to say this. Like they went to a division rival. I know they thought it was, whatever a good idea cute inspirational they went out from the jump and got mashed no other way to put it and that's after they lost the first time around by the way when they uh when they played against each other was like a month ago they lost last time 41 14 you you just lost by almost 30 to a team and you go out and dance on their logo and have a little team meeting on their logo pregame. Are you insane? Well, you're not well informed. Let's put it that way in terms of how this ends up historically. And Devontae Adams said the same thing about the little uh, Robert Quinn did the the discount double check belt. Oh, yeah. I don't right? do it. Don't do it. <laughs> no. And honest to God, I watched this game with my kid. Right. My oldest son uh, is 10 years old. He has started to take an interest in football and he came down and he was like, Oh, it's Packers week. Like oh, he, he, he gets it. He understands. And the bears had a pretty good first half, like better than you would expect on the road against <laughs> one of the better teams in the NFL. And he said, why is Aaron Rodgers smiling right about halftime? And I was like, Oh, oh no. because he knows, right? Because he knows he's going to eat them. Right. He Mm -hmm. always eats them 
and he knows that he is going to bury them and he's just smiling because he knows it's going to come to pass and he did and it did and it's the same thing with the Chiefs. Like, if you add up the Chiefs' two scores from the games of the Raiders this year, they beat them like 89 to 14 or something. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. You don't, it's, it's, I mean, this game was literally the worst margin of victory or best, highest, most margin of victory <laughs> uh, in the history of this rivalry. And they've been playing against each other since a long time. What, Woodstock? <laughs> like, is a that how long, long it's been? Time. Yeah. And this is the so, worst. Yeah, I it is I just don't think it's a great idea and the Raiders as much as I hope they could sustain second half success at this point don't look able to do that and this was another game that we had in our watch list from last week and we said this is really going to determine like if the Raiders can't win this game against Kansas City that's pretty much them throwing up the white flag in the AFC West and and they're just going to have to sort of take whatever they get their destiny goes out of their hands after this point Kansas City did this emphatically they said no 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 we got it guys our division it's cool like start your vacation planning this is you know we've got it we're going to go on and play some football um yeah I, the whole bouncing on the logo thing is sort of a counterpoint we started off with it but no the chiefs are dialed in the raiders are losing their way i understand they've been through a lot we didn't think they would hold together as long as they did they the wheels have started come off are they going to win any games down the stretch they probably will they'll probably pick up a couple games down the stretch does it really matter it doesn't at this point i mean they play let's see in the last month who do they got Browns, Broncos, Colts, Char. Oh Jesus, they might not win. They anything. might not. I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> they might not with that slate. That's, they might pick off one of those games, but mm. that's that's four good teams. Um, so they're going to have to work for it, and we'll see what they have. And and the coaches, of course, will get film on the guys that want to be there and continue to play, and those that don't. Um, but they might not pick up a victory out of those four. That's rough. I hadn't looked at the opposing slate, obviously. <laughs> By the way, speaking of guys that want to play, shout out to D- uh, Divine Diablo, who had a great, you know, presser, I, kind of talking about this game and yeah. calling out the defense. Which, by the way, he's looked really good at linebacker. They got something there with Divine Diablo. Um, Our buddy Sanjit said he was going to play this week, and I sent you that tweet. I was like, dude, like something to watch on the Raiders side. Like Devon Diablo's back. Like this is a guy we really liked and I'm with you. I think they've got a piece that can work for them. Yeah. I mean, there's not many bright spots I could take away from the Raiders for this game other than Hunter Renfro and Devon Diablo, but I'm going to cling to those as much as I can because everything else kind of sucked. It was rough. Three. It was rough. rough. Three down. Number three. Uh, bottom of the barrel in the NFL is as bleak as it's ever been. Again, you look at teams that are at the top of the draft order or on paper at the top of the draft order. There's a lot of trades involved here, but Texans, Jags, Jets, and Lions are usually the foursome of teams that people list when they say, who's the worst team in the NFL? They combined this week for 32 total points. Which I think the Chiefs might have gotten by themselves in just one half against the Raiders. I'll have to double check that. But, I mean, averaging eight points a game across these four teams, 
you know, if you're if you're a, a fan of a team like a Seattle or you know a, a, a Philly where you're out of the playoffs right now and you're like, ah, oh, we suck. No, you don't. You don't understand suck unless you're a fan of one of those teams because that is a different level of oh my god we have work to do if you're averaging between four teams eight points a game that's nuts yeah the bears are bad like the bears are a demonstrably bad football team they're a bad football organization right now they ain't that (laughs) they're averaging twice that per game right they're averaging 16 plus points a game for the season, which is awful. Let's be fair. That is a terrible mark in the NFL and will win you very few games. It's double that. Like, it is legitimately 100% more points than these teams scored. Um, by the way, did you see the stat that was floating around? Uh, I was pretty sure that Bill Zimmerman put it up this week that uh, Matt Nagy's passing offense is is averaging what is 178 yards a game uh oh how it's not even as much as like the 1948 bears yeah, the, or something the like sid, that the yeah. sid luckman bears averaged 175 so like oh, matt Nagy's offense is 20 yards behind the 1940s 20 yards a game behind the 1940s yeah anyways no texans jags jets lines it'll get better in we just talked about the jags that could be a very quick turn if they change the culture, get a new coach, and bring in some offensive line help, like their fortunes could turn very quickly. The Lions, I think, I, I know this is hard for Lions fans to hear, are on the right path, right? They need a quarterback, mm-hmm. and they need some more pieces, but we knew it was a multi-year rebuild. They're playing for Dan Campbell. Even though they are one win and one tie, like, they are playing for Dan Campbell, and honestly, their front office structure looks pretty good their draft was really strong if they have another one of those like fortunes will start to turn it'll really be the season after where they're competing but like it the arrow's going in the right direction the jets ton of talent we believe in robert sala we think he's good zach wilson has a lot of work to do they're gonna have to figure that out but like there's there's still hope in jetsville texans the texans let's just sorry let's just texans move on I. <laughs> it's just Texans. The, Texan, the Texans are their own. Yeah, just Texans. Thing, just and we'll probably do a, a podcast like dedicated to, to how to. I'm not. I'm not even going to say fix. You know what how it to reminds make them somewhat me of? Respectable. So huh. Cristobal goes to from University of Oregon to the University of Miami as the head coach, Mario Cristobal, and they're like, "Why would you do this? Like Miami has so many more issues, and you had a good thing going in Oregon." And he goes, "It's a Canes thing. You just wouldn't understand." I think we need to kind of port that and be like, "Look, it's a Texans thing. You just wouldn't understand." They're in their own yeah, like alternate just, dimension. You could just say <laughs> like, Texans, and that covers it. It's like it's like that sticky tape thing on the side of the leaky vat, right? <laughs> why? Why is this? Texans. <laughs> at least Jets fans like get to like look at Zach Wilson BYU highlights and be like one day like Texans fans got nothing. They got a, yeah, no, but I mean the And Jets I fans say that as a Texans fan, we got nothing. Right. But I mean Jets got Michael Carter, they got Elijah Moore, they got Vera Tucker, they got they they got they got things to look at. And they're going to have more things to look at because Jets have picks coming up. So, um yeah, it's going to be it's going to be fun for those uh, three out of those four teams arrow kind of pointing up or could be depending on what happens with Urban Meyer. Texans are Texans. 
Three interesting, number one, speaking of the beloved Bears, by the way. This is a great section this week. Like, all three of these things are, like, intensely interesting. Legitimately interesting. Not just like, oh, we need to find a way to talk about this. Let's find an interesting angle. Like, no, this is just like a one-off fucking interesting stat comparison. So, Justin Fields versus Mac Jones. And I want to preface this by saying this is not anti-Mac Jones in any way. Mac Jones is a very good young quarterback, especially when he is kept clean in the pocket because he's accurate. He's a good decision maker. You and I both love what he's done with New England. But that being said, when we're talking about quarterbacks from clean pockets, Mac Jones is good. Justin Fields has arguably been just as good, if not better. But the problem is he doesn't really get the same number of clean pockets per game. So we don't really get to see it. Yeah, this is so Justin Fields, when he's kept clean, which if you're a Bears fan, you know, is an infinitesimally small percentage of the time because (laughs) the offensive line has been inconsistent at best, terrible at worst. So we've got four different stats here for both quarterbacks. Average depth of target, ADOT. Big time throw percentage. This is a PFF stat that talks about the uh, likelihood of a throw being a throw that makes a difference, whether it be for yardage, um, changing the, the scene of the game. We've got adjusted completion percentage. And then we've got time to throw, which is literally from the snap, how long it takes the ball to get out of the quarterback's hands. So this is, again, when both quarterbacks are kept clean, and we'll start with fields, ADOT, 9.2, depth of target. That's good. <laughs> that is That's a, awesome. That is a fine number for any quarterback in the NFL. Big time throw percentage, 6.4%. Adjusted completion percentage, 68%. Very solid percentage. And time to throw is 2.62 seconds, which for those of you scoring at home, one of the knocks on Justin Fields was he tended to hold the ball too long because he is a very accurate deep ball thrower and he looks to get he looks to push the ball down the field. That is something he's going to do more often than other quarterbacks. Mac Jones also when kept clean. Average depth of target 7.2, two yards less than Justin Fields. Big time throw percentage, 4.6 two percentage points lower than Justin Fields. 79% adjusted completion percentage. Now this is 11 points higher than Fields. This is Mac Jones being a very accurate passer, which is, as we said before the draft, one of his hallmarks. And then time to throw is 2.36. So he also gets the ball out more quickly on these shorter throws. He makes quick, accurate decisions, and he is very good at that. That was one of the things that we said Look, Mac is as good at this as, you know, we think he's better than Tua, and this is one of Tua's hallmarks, is quick, accurate decisions on shorter throws. So when you keep Justin Fields clean, his stats look really good, better than the best rookie quarterback in the class, Mac Jones. Issue is Fields is pressured on roughly 45% of his dropbacks. One out of every two, Justin Fields has pressure in his face. Mac Jones is pressured on... 28 percent give or take one every four yeah a lot less it's a half. it's about half it's about, about half, half. Yeah. 
So it's not that Fields needs to be a better quarterback. It's that Fields needs more time to do what he does. And we've said this consistently, certainly on Bears Over Beers, that, look, if you give any quarterback, and I mean any quarterback, Tom Brady, Aaron, anybody, less than two seconds to operate in the pocket before somebody's influencing their throw or moving them off their spot, they're going to look terrible. And they're going to be bitching out their offensive line. Like, Tom Brady is going to be taking those guys to task, and they're going to go to war for him because he's going to be like, guys, I need two and a half seconds. Give me two and a half seconds, not two. So (laughs) if Justin Fields gets two and a half seconds, he's going to start tearing people up commensurately. If he doesn't, he's going to continue to run for his life and look like he has for more than half of the season in Chicago. So want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, the whole segment there was built off a tweet by a guy named future is fields on Twitter, made that comparison. We thought it was really interesting, uh, brought that onto the show. So thanks to futures fields, um, and on to three interesting number two. Um, yes, the Falcons, <laughs> uh, yeah. one of the weirdest teams in the NFL this year, because they're not good but they're also not bad. They are the picture of average. And actually, if I look at the draft order right now, they're sitting at nine. So they're like kind of in that upper echelon of like slightly below average, but clearly not terrible teams. You know, they're not on the same level of the Giants, the Jets, the Texans, yada, yada, yada. Here's what's interesting about the Falcons. They're 0-5 against current playoff teams with a negative 127 point differential a significant chunk of that's from dallas by the way (laughs) they're six and two against everyone else with a plus 15 differential so they beat who they're supposed to beat barely but they do it but when they go against like a really good team they get annihilated and i think that is the honestly and this is going to sound weird best case scenario they could have hoped for in the first year of Arthur Smith with no Calvin Ridley with your best offensive player, not being Matt Ryan being probably Cordero Patterson. Your offensive line is inconsistent at best. Your defense is inconsistent at best. And you're still six and two against non-playoff teams. Like you're still firmly in the middle of the league. That at least to me, they're not a good team. But they're not bad. And that is a good sign for Arthur Smith, at least to me, as a head coaching prospect. Yeah, we talked about this. He is definitely getting more out of anybody, uh, more out of Cordell Patterson than anybody has. Like, ever. And and a lot of people, like, four teams have had that guy now, and, and they've all sort of had different things. And Arthur Smith went to school on all of them and went, what if I just threw them all in the same pot and stirred? And then added a little pixie dust, and now he's got what he's got in Cordell Patterson. But this is the very definition. We talked about this a week week or two ago about good good, good teams, good, bad teams, bad, good teams, and bad, bad teams. Like, this is the definition of a good, bad team. This is a team that wins when it should, but when it goes up against anybody real, forget about it. It's like tissue paper. They're not holding up at all. They're going to get wiped off the field by a team that they are outclassed by. Um, it's going to be very obvious. Again, they are winning the close games. Credit to them for that. And that is a 
best case scenario for an early stage coach getting his roster reformed and and having them start to understand how to play under his system they should be winning those close games again those are their should win games but yeah when they go up against playoff teams they're over over five 130 points off the pace like that's not great that is a good bad team they look good against teams they should beat and against teams they shouldn't beat forget about it just <laughs> bet the over <laughs> bet the- <laughs> <laughs> bet them not to cover like you know whatever it's that's the gig so falcons are are a real dichotomy right they're pretty good against some teams you get them against a real team and this has been one of the things about other teams in the league i think of the bears most notably again like everybody's like oh the bears are terrible and then they play the lions and they go oh maybe they're not that bad because they whoop the crap out of the lions and have for there's the levels to this yes right yes. but then they go play a team uh, like the Packers, and they get you know blown out by twice as much. Like the score gets doubled on them. They basically get boat raised, and it's like, oh yeah, oh well, they're not going to compete with that. And it's like, no, no, they're not. And that is, you know, in the Falcons' case, at least they're winning the games they should. But boy, when they get up against elite competition, you start to see the cracks, and you see how far they have to go. Honestly, like. If you told a Falcons fan back in August, hey, you're six and seven, you know, in week 14, they'd be like, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong. That. You're not wrong I'm at good all. With that. Three interesting number three. Uh, this has also been an interesting discussion that's kind of taken place this last week. Micah Parsons probably locked up defensive rookie of the year at this point. I, I haven't checked the odds on Caesars, but I'd be willing to bet it's like minus 500 or something like that. Like something insane. He's going to win defensive rookie of the year. The question is, will he also win defensive player of the year? Because his numbers are definitely in that territory. Yeah, this is, this is the question. Defensive rookie of the year, I think has been somewhat clear for about the last three weeks. Like, People have been coming around to the idea that Micah Parsons can do whatever he wants to on a football field and that Dallas is letting him and he's succeeding in every role they put him in. He's starting to stack up numbers and whether you like it or not, numbers represent voting for awards. Doesn't matter if it's Mm -hmm. Pro Bowl, doesn't matter if it's All Pro, doesn't matter if it's Hall of Fame, right? They talk about numbers, number of times they were selected to an all-star team, number of times they went to the Super Bowl, number of times they were the best player at their position. Let's talk about some numbers because these are eye-opening. Um, and tweet credit goes to Reddit Cowboy status. Uh, Parsons in 13 games this year, 12 sacks, 75 tackles, 17 tackles for loss, and 27 QB hits. E- easily enough mm. to win him rookie of the year. And he's been exceptional in coverage. He has showed range down the seam to both sidelines outside the numbers that is atypical of the position he plays. Very and certainly guys. not what he showed in college, by the way. Like he's gotten <laughs> better in coverage since he, he got is, in the league. He is more fluid in coverage than what we saw at Penn State. And again, this is a kind of Justin Herbert at Oregon situation where a guy has more talent than the system he's in allows him to show, or he's just not used in those ways. 
So those numbers I mentioned for Parsons in 13 games. Now, a guy named Khalil Mack that some NFL fans are familiar with <laughs> won Defensive Player of the Year pretty recently, 2016. His numbers in 16 games that year are as follows. 11 sacks, 73 tackles, 14 tackles for loss, and 26 QB hits. All numbers under what Parsons has done in 13 games this year. He has four more left with the 17-game season. So one less sack, two less tackles, three less TFLs, and one less QB hit earned Khalil Mack Defensive Player of the Year not that long ago. Parsons has four more games. He's healthy. He's playing at a high level in a defense that is showcasing all of his skills. Is he going to win Defensive Rookie of the Year? Almost certainly. Should he win Defensive Player of the Year? Look, he's got some stiff competition in Miles Garrett. And TJ Watt. TJ Watt as well, but TJ Watt's team is not doing as well. And typically for individual awards, it's the best players on better teams. Very rarely is the top guy the best guy on a bad team. And the Steelers are not a great team right now. So that's going to hurt TJ Watt, whether that's fair or not. It's a fact. Miles Garrett, same thing. Browns are a little above 500. We'll see how they do in the last month here. They could surge. But Garrett has been dominant. And he's got name recognition, which also helps in these awards. But if you stack up pure numbers and impact, like Micah Parsons has a legitimate shot to be defensive player of the year in the same year he's defensive rookie of the year. And that is astounding stuff. Who's the last person to do that? LT, maybe? I don't know. I was going to look it up before the show, and I ran out of time. I I honestly don't know the answer. I do believe it's happened before, but I don't know the answer to who. So I'm sure it'll if show anybody the did it, if anybody did it, it's LT. But yeah, I it's somebody can't like remember. LT for sure. Yeah. But let's just say how ridiculous that is. That, that <laughs> we're like, well, maybe it's LT if anybody. <laughs> like <laughs> having seen Lawrence Taylor play like in person as a young football fan. Oh, God, if that's all you can come up with for a comparison, Micah Parsons is going to wreck for a long time. Like, Lawrence Taylor is one of the most dominant defensive players I have ever seen. And I saw prime Bruce Smith, prime Lawrence Taylor. Like, I've seen a great many defensive players. If those are the guys that are coming to mind after half a season as a rookie. Yeah, with. I mean, let's let's not mince words here. Kind of a jacked off season because of COVID and everything like that. Like, and he, he hasn't even been playing with some of the other best edge rushers on the team. He's been like the main threat in several games because Lawrence has been out, Gregory's been out. Like, this is this isn't even full power, Micah Parsons. <laughs> This is not Super Saiyan Micah Parsons is what you're saying? No, no. Yeah, this is like Goku still with his tail. You know, it's <laughs> it's insane. It's insane. Uh, let's get to bootleg shot of the week where uh, this was a result that I, I honestly didn't even expect. I, I kind of hoped for it, but I didn't expect it. Justin Herbert, the first quarterback 
to take home the bootleg shot of the week, running down Jesse Bates on a fumble return, making a form tackle, running like a cracked out gazelle on the Serengeti. <laughs> six six quarterback, by the way. He's six six, not six. Yeah, five. not six five. Be not very six, five. clear about that. So cheers to uh, Justin Herbert. I have straight up JMO this this week. I did put it on ice, so it looks like I a lot my, more than it is. Oh, Casadores, Reposado. Nice. No, this is there was an ice cube in here, but that was two hours ago. So now it's JMO and water apparently, which is fine uh, for me. But I think it's the novelty. Justin Herbert, a quarterback, went in bootleg shot of the week. Yeah, so I'm toasting this hit, and I'm also toasting that throw to Jalen Guyton that he made that was like a billion yards this week, because holy fuck. That was, that was so insane. cool. It didn't even fit on the next-gen stats chart. It just shows it leaving. It doesn't show it coming down, because it doesn't go that far. <laughs> Did you see uh, DJ's reaction, his live reaction yes. to it in the booth? And I, <laughs> I like, tweeted it out, hell? and I said, totally justified. Like, and you know what's funny? Did you see this morning a fan came back at him and was like, well, actually, and DJ's reaction was, oh, okay. God, God bless Twitter. Like, I said it was the best throw I'd ever seen. You might have seen a different throw that you think is better. Like, that's okay, but literally that is the best throw I've ever seen. So, yeah. You know, good on you for telling me it's not. Like, whatever. But, yeah, Herbert is a complete alien. The one thing is, from the TV angle, it was an amazing throw no matter which way you look at it. From the TV angle, it looks like he has a second right before he gets hit to set and really throw. He did not have time at From all. the all-22, he, like, sets and chucks it and gets annihilated. Like, it's like, he's like, ha, ha, whack. And he just gets absolutely blasted. The ball goes 65 yards to Guyton over two defenders who are like, no, come on, not us. We don't want to be on this highlight. Like, that, he's one of one right now. There's the, nobody those safeties, that can make that Those play. safeties absolutely did not believe the ball could physically go that far. They're like, no, we're running full speed. <laughs> we're within a step. What is this? You can't do this. So... Anyways, Justin Herbert, for all your amazing traits, you deserve this. Oh, I love oh. you, Casadores. I love the water of my people. I'm running low, though. I might only have... You are. I might I, only get through the regular I season with this. I am not running low, Jameson's, because one of one of the holiday traditions for us is to, is to have Jameson's around the house because you drink a little bit while you're cooking or you toast when you're making the turkey or whatever, so... Um, as I've grown into adulthood, I've always made sure, oh, yeah, hey, by the way, it's like two weeks till Christmas. I have to I have to go get a bottle. Well, uh, my wife did it for me this year, and she got the big bottle. Like Oh, I'm, the, like, gallon of Jameson? Yeah. It doesn't have the handle in it. It's the one below that size. But, like, literally, I I always buy, you know, just regular fifths, like not, not huge bottles. <laughs> she comes home, she's like, I got you. I got you Jameson's with two hands. And I was like, Oh, okay. So that's just so, a, a, that's a morning cordial in Belfast. Yeah. <laughs> true. <laughs> true. All right. And the good thing about shot of the week. Yeah. We have a full slate. Like some weeks we kind of scrape by with three or four and like, Oh, it was good. Or maybe it was it. like this week. It was like, we had like eight nominees and we're like, these are the top four, like, or five. Like we, we picked, Shots. we had to cut down we had to cut this down week. this week yeah all right you kept mine uh, in which is good yes i did because you specifically requested it and i loved it too 
but number one, though, is Bernardrick McKinney on a great run fit on Austin Eckler. It looks better from the top angle uh, where you can really see just like how his momentum immediately stopped when he met Bernardrick McKinney in the hole. But it, when I remember when I watched this live because I was watching this game and I like right away DM'd you. I was like, Bernardrick McKinney, run fit, <laughs> hit Eckler. That's going in. This and, was the uh, God, earliest bootleg shot of the week DM I've gotten in some time. It was like <laughs> not even a quarter into the morning games. I get this like, this is it. And I was like, okay. Uh, you sent me this one. This was a car, Derek Carr getting blasted off the Chiefs logo by Alex Okafor, who uh, you know kind of ran himself at a pretty deep angle. And then Carr was kind of like, you know, trying to find an escape lane and run towards the line of scrimmage. And, and Oak four just came from behind him and wrecked him like absolutely wrecked him from behind. Um, uh, 90 degrees and just cleaned his house. D cleater took him right off his feet. Um, and the funny thing is it was right on the logo. Like he was running across the logo and the half step he gets off the logo Okafor just cleans him off his feet. It's a it's a blast. Nominee number three, Matt Milano, show favorite. Uh, actually, three and four are both both kind of similar, so I'll kind of do them at the same time because they're both hang zone defenders waiting for a shallow cross to come right to them, and they both just completely light up their receiver. Number one is Matt Milano on Chris Godwin on the shallow cross at about a five yard depth. And he's just watching and waiting and Godwin gets it. And Milano immediately goes into his rib cage, nothing dirty, anything like that. But you know, Godwin got up quick, but I can tell he's like, Ooh, that one's, that one's going to stick. And then Denzel Ward, even more vicious in my opinion, uh, on Devonta Freeman, kind of doing a leak shallow and, uh, just getting completely hung out to dry and Ward closed on it. Again, another deep cleater, fantastic hit. Also legal, shoulder to shoulder. I checked. I went frame by frame, I promise. Uh, but, man, just a lot of vicious hits this week. We probably had eight or nine options and cut it down to four, and it was tough to do. And we got We got to say this. It's not an official one you can vote on, but, hey, write-ins, you know, whatever. You do you. The shot that Minka Fitzpatrick put on in the end zone in Thursday night football that got a flag. It should not have been flagged. That was legal. We're so if you want to write this one in, you go ahead because we're going to say, we have always said if it's flagged or if somebody got injured, we're not putting it in the official right after they called this Minka went up and was like, Hey, like after, after everything had been died down and the penalty had been assessed, he went up to the official and was like, what exactly is it you want me to do? I want you to tell me because, like, I think that was legal. And the official went like this and backed up, like, and called the next play. Like, if you look at this shot, Minka hits uh, the receiver in the end zone, uh, who was K.J. Osborne, like, exactly as the NFL says they want him to hit. He comes in, he hits him under the shoulder with largely his shoulder yes his helmet glances off but he is not leading with the crown and he does not deliver any force with his helmet he literally puts his shoulder under osborne's shoulder 
and levels him. So it's not an official choice because it got a flag. But if you want to write it in, you go ahead and do that. You're because, perfectly allowed to. Because he I'll put it. I'll put mashed, it as like an option five. Yeah, he <laughs> mashed Osborne in a completely legal hit. And he got flagged for it. He shouldn't have. Uh, that is the hit that the NFL says they want. The bottom line is it looked like a complete demolition. And they just went, ah, it's too much force. We, j- we just can't let that go. Um, I guarantee you he heard the sound and was like, well, that just has to be illegal. Right. Like, Something oh, had to be wrong there. Uh, but it wasn't. Uh, that was, yeah. So our protest here at Bootleg is free Minka. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to the week 15 watch list. Uh, first game up. I don't remember the last time we had a Thursday game on the watch list, but we got one this week. KC at the Chargers. I was really thinking about going to this game, but I just couldn't. I couldn't find a, a good, you know, Airbnb in time. Because honestly, who wants to like drive out to LA and go to a game and then drive back home? Like for where I live, that's a pain in the ass. So I was like, either I stay in LA or I don't go. Couldn't find a good place to stay, so I'm not going to go in person. But I really wanted to because seeing Justin Herbert versus Pat Mahomes in person. And Herbert, by the way, 3-1 and one against the Chiefs in his career. And his only loss, I think, was his first ever start where he went in um, where, the, where, where Tyrod had like his lungs collapsed by the doctor. And I think, I think that's his only loss against the Chiefs was like when he got his 20 minutes notice. Start. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm kind of glad that you can't go because I was like, if he goes, I'm going to have to fly down and go. (laughs) (laughs) It's a hell of a game. It's a hell of a game. We talked about it preseason. Like when we were circling games preseason, we were like late season, Chiefs, Chargers. We expected both of these teams to be good. We were like, it's by your house. We were like, Mm, this might be a like December game we have to go to. Like it was one of our games on the list uh, at the very beginning of the year when we were working that out preseason. So two and one, not three and one. Excuse me, they haven't played four games yet. But if he wins this one, he'll be three and one. Worst case, he'll be fifty fifty against the Chiefs, which not a whole lot of quarterbacks can say in the uh, in the Pat Mahomes era. That's a pretty tough tough ask uh game number two indy versus the patriots we got the colts hosting new england always a fascinating rivalry because neither uh program likes each other very much and even though we got some new faces there with carson wentz and mac jones i still feel like the hatred runs a little bit deeper than people realize like these are these are two franchises that have no love lost Every time they play each other, it's very physical, very, very physical. And you've got two quarterbacks that I think are, I think it's fair to say they're exceeding expectations this year with Mac Jones being a rookie and Carson Wentz being a uh, reclamation project for Frank Reich that so far is going pretty well. You know, both defenses, I think, are, you know, fast and furious. Should be fun, you know. Seeing Jonathan Taylor go up against Christian Barmore should be at least entertaining. And then uh, game number three, we got New Orleans at Tampa Bay. You know, there's something about the Saints that has just really given Tom Brady trouble since he's gone down to Tampa Bay. Uh, it's it's kind of like his new Dolphins, where inexplicably they'll just rip wins off of him, even when they have no business competing. They just do. 
They've been a thorn in Tom Brady's side as a Buccaneer. So I'm watching just for that reason, because for whatever reason, uh, this defense eats him alive. Yeah, that feels like the reason I put it on the list was like, there's just something about Saints Bucks. It's it's a Canes thing, you know. It's it's a Saints Bucks thing. You it's just sometimes you look at that game and you go, ah, shouldn't be good, shouldn't be close. Like, you know, whoever when it was Drew Brees should be blowing them off the map. Bucks would play them tough. Now it's Tom Brady. Oh, they should roll. Like the Saints are undermanned. Like, mm, I, w- I wouldn't bet on it uh patriots colts is interesting just from two teams that are really coming with a classic late season approach right we're gonna try and run and it'll be it'll be fascinating to see who bends first now this is not outside key thing it's in indy right so inside but like two teams with a very classic hard-hitting december kind of playoff approach we are gonna run first we're gonna play very physical defense on both sides of the ball like this is gonna be a war. This is gonna be some some hard hitting really early, and then who can adjust from whatever gets taken away? Like I would expect both run games to get stymied somewhat early because both both coaches are very competent in doing that. And whoever makes that adjustment, and look, Belichick is a master of adjustments, but he's on the road and he's gonna have to adapt again to what is a dangerous and very good team. Chiefs Chargers are just going to be like, I hope it's just going to be awesome. I hope it's just going to be two teams. I'm really glad it's not the earlier season version of the Chiefs, right? Which was a distinctly yeah, flawed I, team. Yeah, I want it this version of the Chiefs. I want right. like 60-yard bombs every other possession. Like, I, I want defense optional. That's what I want here. <laughs> and, you know, Kansas City has, has reclaimed their spot in the division based on defense, which is fascinating. So can the Chargers show up like they did a couple of weeks ago with a with a defense that's equal to their, you know, Herbert led offense or is, you know, which of the four units is going to fold here? Um, Should be a should be a classic contest. Going to be a great Thursday night game. I'm looking forward to all those games. So uh, before we get out of here, what do you got to plug for uh, Bears over Bears? You just got through Packers week. You got about a month left of games. What do you got coming up? Yeah, so a lot of Bears fans have checked out, and rightfully so. And we get that. So <laughs> last week we came up with the absurd idea, and it got legs. Uh, it started as a joke. JB texted me and said, man, I really don't want to talk about the Packers very much. Like, this is not going to be a fun game. What are we going to do? What should we talk about? And I just snapped back, cheese. <laughs> and he was like... <laughs> A cheese draft? I'm in. And I was like, a cheese draft? All right, cool. I'll make a cheese draft. Fuck it. So we made a cheese draft. (laughs) There were hard cheeses. There were soft cheeses. And then there was a flex category. We went full fantasy football. And the flex category had things like squeeze cheese and queso, which isn't really a cheese, and beer cheese dip, which is many cheeses. Like, we went full boat. You had to have... Five cheeses plus a flex. Two hards, two softs, whatever the filler was, and then a flex. And I swear to God, I got a hundred comments on Twitter about the cheese draft. Can I ask a question? Did you allow cheese curds? Uh, We didn't put cheese curds in as an option, but I swear to God, the entire reason this very silly concept worked 
is because everybody has an opinion instantly whether they know anything about football or not everybody knows something about cheese and people were like it's criminal that you didn't put gouda on the list <laughs> that is a i'm just i'm not even i'm not even gonna like bless this with my inference because you didn't have gouda like people got heated about cheese so it was a silly idea that absolutely got legs we did the cheese draft last week we're gonna have to follow that up we've got a great guest we're gonna bring brad spielberger from pff on he's an old friend of the show he's been coming on for years and we're gonna start talking about gm candidates because naggy is assumed gone like everybody's pretty sure naggy's gone so the coaching candidate thing will come we will talk about that but the real crux move here is do you keep ryan pace and the narrative has changed in the last week there was a lot of thought that pace might be kept and promoted to dealing with the stadium and taken away from the football operations piece there is some turn in that that a promotion this week is not in consideration in the cards it's either keeping him in his current role or not keeping him and that is a distinct change and if that's the case the likelihood that ryan pace leaves with Nagy is much higher than if he has that out to go deal with the stadium in Arlington Heights. So we're going to start talking about GM candidates. Nobody better than Brad to do that. I mean, the the stadium in itself is one of the more interesting topics around the league to me, just because of everybody in the Chicago area has an opinion on it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's like people that are, (laughs) the people that are in the city are like, Oh, no, please don't make me go out there. And everybody in the suburbs is like, please, God, yes, don't make me go back to the city. <laughs> yeah, and then the mayor's weighing in, and there's Oh, there's it's, a whole it's thing a there. shit show. It's a there's glorious a shit show. Um, I got a film room coming out on the Seahawks, specifically their offense and why it didn't work, and then why it suddenly started to work, and why even though the offense suddenly started to work, there still might need to be a blow up here. My goal is to preserve Russell Wilson being a Seahawk, but I understand if that's not possible, but it's kind of a a film room about what the issues are, how they solved them, how they can continue to solve them going forward and why, despite their perceived improvement, uh, it, it, it still might require a, a pretty significant tear down here. But um, yeah, hell of a show, hell of a week of football. We got, you know, if anything uh, to go by from the week 15 watch list and even better week of football coming up here in a couple days. Thank you all for watching and listening from all the different countries that you guys watch and listen from. I, I can't even list the amount of countries that we're in at this point because it's it truly is a global show and we love all of you for supporting us and, and helping to make this possible. Uh, we will see you back here next Wednesday, hopefully recapping a great week 15. And uh, until then. Later. Take care.